1: Capital Retirement Strategies and Cambridge Investment Research are not affiliated.
0: All right, welcome to Plan for Life Now, episode 100. Dave, people have been waiting for this episode, and I'm afraid to disappoint people, but we're not going to do some of the stuff we talked about because this, I don't want to ever say emergency episode because I don't think there can be anything emergency about our podcast, Uh, but it's, this one's sort of in response to what's been going on,
1: right? and we felt like we needed to do it. Yeah, this is a podcast that is actually, I think it may be fitting for the 100th episode. You know, there's enough going on right now. I I hate to use emergency or crisis. That is what the media is calling it. I mean, we'll get into that. But, you know, this is more to inform you and it's more serious. And we do have some clients who've been concerned about this, most importantly. Right. So we want to address what we will, what, what are they, I will call it the banking crisis.
0: Uh, for lack of a better term, let's go with that. And yeah, it's you know when we see three or four clients emailing, calling, asking questions about it, that means that at least ten times that many are thinking it, but just haven't gotten around to. Or, or sometimes like people say, well, I didn't want to bother you guys with these questions. Say, well, isn't isn't it our job to be you know bothered quote unquote by clients? I mean. That, that's the whole idea is that you can
1: come to us and ask these questions. Yeah, exactly. that's exactly was my once you have three or four or five clients or anybody coming to you about something, it means that's the tip of the iceberg. And yep. people don't like to bother us, even though that's the number one thing we want to be is bothered by clients. Because you're thinking about it, you don't quite understand it. But the reality is, a banking crisis would make the average person uh, a little worried when they hear banking crisis and then the media goes off on that. And then you you start to read the articles, but it starts to get convoluted. So let's start to explain. I'm going to start off. I know you're very good at editing what I say and coming in with facts. No, go ahead. I'm going to come in with my feeling on what this all is. From what I've read and then just gut feeling, and then I want to see how you react and what you're feeling about what all this is. So basically what this is, is there was the financial crisis in 2008, where truly the very biggest financial institutions, including the biggest banks in the world, which most were situated here in the United States were falling apart from everything you already know about the 2008 collapse. In response to that, and importantly, and I know this is a generalization, but as a general rule, Democratic administrations uh, tend to do regulation harder than Republican. So during the Obama uh, administration, which was all of the regulation, you had the Dodd-Frank Act, which basically said we are going to put into effect all these regulations, all these rules, all these restrictions that says a bank where you keep your money cannot fall apart because of all these rules, or if it were, it'd be an extraordinary situation. That's how tight those rules were. Now, as time went on, and and those rules are fantastic, as time went on, we got into Trump administration, and they are, Republican administrations tend to deregulate. And what they did was, and in all fairness, with a a lot of Democrats also. I I was going to
0: say it was bipartisan. Oh, yeah.
1: No doubt about it. So because it's not as always, these things are not money is usually not political. And in this case, this is not really a political. Both sides are on this. They decided, you know what? These restrictions are working great, but we don't really it's not fair to smaller, quote, smaller banks. Right. So the bottom line is that all these restrictions will be on for banks with assets of $250 billion or more. But if you right. have less than that, we're going to release some of these restrictions just so these smaller banks, smaller, there's a lot of big banks in the smaller can, can compete. Now, throughout all of this, and during, from the beginning, you came up with a, a really important phrase for now, and that is too big to fail. So yep. basically, if you were bank's assets are $250 billion or more, which is the top base right now It's about the top 12 banks in of God only knows how many banks, the top 12 have well over 250 billion of assets. You are still under the Dodd-Frank regulation, and you've come up with this phrase, it's too big to fail, meaning not only are all these regulations in place on you, you're just not going to fit. You're too big to fail. We're never going to have a financial crisis because the, the reasoning was, even though we're We're like going back there on Dodd Frank, ninety or whatever percent of the deposits are in the top twelve banks of the too big to fail. So in in general, the the system can't collapse, even though we're we're doing this routine.
0: And And just so you know, the the threshold before this bipartisan repeal in 2018, the threshold was fifty billion. Right. So it went from 50 billion up to 250 billion. So like you said, you know, that that allowed a lot of these quote-unquote smaller banks, but they're still <laughs> still pretty big uh to not have to deal with the the Dodd-Frank regulation, which is essentially a very rigorous stress test where you know, what happened in the financial crisis is all these assets went down at the exact same time and nobody had modeled that out. I mean, uh, amazingly, they'd said, "Well, national housing can't go down all at once." Well, the Dodd Frank regulation and the stress tests are designed to put these banks through these process where you say, "What if this happens? What if this happens? You know, will you be okay?"
1: Right now, the other thing you might know this. I don't know when this (laughs) went into effect, but the other thing that happened, I guess, along with this originally, was the your deposits are now safe up to 250,000. It used to be 100,000. I don't know when that happened. Do you? That was in the financial crisis as well. Okay. So that's in there too and that's a big deal. So with all that going on, everything was fine basically until this Silicon Valley Bank had their issues. Now, want to forget about their issues because that starts to get complicated. The bottom line is there was a maybe we'll talk about why there was a run on well, the bank.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean let, let let's start with, you know, or start. <laughs> let's let's go with some basics here just on banking. And I don't want to get geeky, but on the fractional reserve banking, you know, nature. What what is that? And this is just very in general, and I think most of us know this is that when you put your money with a bank, they don't just sit there and hold on to it. Now, I remember learning this in second or third grade, and I, I was just baffled by it I, I thought that if I deposited my money in a bank, you know they stuck it in a little box they put Steve Killiiannie on it and then if I wanted to get my money out, they would go into that box. Well, that's not at all what banks do. you know if banks take in a hundred billion dollars in deposits, they might keep 10 or 15 billion readily available. And what do they do with the le- the rest uh, they loan that money out. You know, this is what what banks do. So they're going to loan it out in mortgages and auto loans and credit card loans. Or if they can't make those kind of loans or don't want to, they will buy bonds. You know, it's essentially what you're doing when you're buying a bond. You're loaning money. So what happened with Silicon Valley Bank specifically is they were doing just normal banking practice, you know, take money in, take in all these deposits, loaning money out, buying bonds, things like that. But the problem was that they were heavily concentrated in, as the name implies, in Silicon Valley and a lot of these tech startups and things like that. Well, in 2020, 21, those companies were getting funded left and right. I mean, it was so easy to get financing that that they were getting all of this money, and they didn't need, you know, when a startup gets funded, just make up a number say they get a billion dollars in funding. Well, they don't need a billion dollars all at once. They're, they'll they need, you know, a couple, whatever, a couple million dollars a year for quite a long time. So they deposited in a bank. Well, flip the script. And what happened last year is no companies were getting any funding and they were burning through cash. So now you've got this very concentrated deposit base that's burning through cash. And what happened was Silicon Valley Bank realized that they were going to have to sell some of their bonds. So essentially the loans they were making to make sure they had enough reserve requirements. And you had essentially a classic run on the bank. I mean, this in theory could happen to any bank where if all the depositors Decided they wanted all their money at once. Well, the bank's not going to have that. Like I said, they only keep ten or fifteen percent on hand. But in the world of the internet, in a highly concentrated deposit base, they had—I don't know what the number was. I think it was something last Thursday. They had forty-two percent, uh, you know, of the the deposits were requested. So obviously, they're not going to be able to make that uh, make
1: that happen and and here we are. Yeah, well, here's also by the way, they also made a bet with a lot of when they had a lot of when they were sort of cash heavy, they bet a lot on long-term bonds. Wow, well, yeah. And, and and one of America's greatest financiers, if they were advising them, would never have allowed that. That of course being you. You've always been against. We were, when I say we, but it's just your mindset was always don't put money in the long-term bond thing. Because interest
0: rates are uh, going to go up rate, at some point. Right. So, I, I mean, to give you a sense, you know, in January 1st, 2021, if you bought a one-year government bond, you bought a one-year government bond, you were getting paid 0.39%. Right? So you're getting paid almost nothing. You know, today, I haven't looked today because it's been moving a lot, but 45 to 5%? So what happened, to, to finish your part of it here, and, and why they failed and why they, you know, hopefully are not like a lot of other corporations, is they bought these longer-term bonds. Interest rates went up much faster than anybody anticipated, so they had massive losses. You know, no, no one, if they had to do the, the stress tests in the Dodd-Frank uh, and and, you know, some of those things, they would have seen, you know, interest rates go up, massive losses, you know, we could be in trouble there. Um, So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it was bad risk management, concentrated investor deposits, uh, you know, just a lot of things that they did wrong there.
1: All right. So here's now my, now my takeaway, getting all the way from explanation way back into forest from trees. These, if you looked at the assets of the top 12 banks, they are all topped over way more than the other ones. Like the difference between SVB, which was like number 20, and the top 12 is at least twice as many assets that they had. Right. The two big. So you're, you're basically in two categories, right? So these are people, went, well, I'm worried about banking in general. All right. <laughs> you have a choice now. Too big to fail. As the name implies, too big to fail under right. all the regulations there, or a category of every other bank that I put in as a new category called, I'll get right. back to you on Monday. <laughs> so, where should right. I put my money? If you're worried about what's the other thing, first, there's the FDIC guarantee. How many people have more than $250,000 in any one bank? You're worried about it to that if you, you have to believe in the FDIC protection right? and that's 250,000. But I think my gut feeling is a lot of people are, you know what? I get the FDIC thing. I just don't want my bank bank going under. Forget it. I don't want to see in the newspaper. I don't, I just don't want to see that kind of fragility in my bank. So my feeling would be a rely on that $250,000 deposit. Yeah. And me, if it's me, it doesn't have to be you. And I've been this, this was me before. <laughs> I like the too big to fail. Why? Because it's too big to fail and it's not yeah. going to. And the government's already said that. Besides all the regulation have to do versus, and this is your choice, eh, I'll get back <laughs> to you on Monday.
0: <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good characterization. You know, we should mention, that you know, Silicon Valley Bank was not the only one. Uh, Signature Bank also failed. Not the same story, but a similar sort of story, in the sense that you know they they got heavily into the crypto world. You know, we know what's happened with crypto in the last eighteen months. You know, it's gone from being this fantastic party where everybody's getting rich and there's all this money to everything collapsing, all kinds of fraud with, um, you know, FTX and Sam Bankman freed and all that. So, you know, Signature Bank sort of had the same thing that very concentrated deposit base, people started to pull money out. And frankly, you know, from what I understand that they weren't even in a situation of insolvency quite yet, but the regulators I read this somewhere. The regulators were so unimpressed with the management that they took over the bank. So, you know, very similar thing. Also, you know, in that category of the less than 250 billion. So they did not have to do the same sort of stress tests there. Now, apologies for my voice. I'm still getting over this cold or God knows what it is. Um, you know, of course, we want to pull this back. You know, for those of you that love the details and all the nerdy stuff, the last 15 minutes were probably great. But for those of you who say, okay, just tell me what this really means for my situation. So I sort of broke this down here, Dave, into, you know, four different big assets. And I know we could, you know, dice it and splice it in a million different ways, but you know, how does this relate to? my stock investment. Well, I you know, <laughs> the answer that I wrote down on paper is I don't know, but I don't think it really changes the narrative compared to what we have been talking about, which is that we might go into a recession. It certainly seems like, the economy is slowing down. you know, it, it seems more likely than not that we will go into a recession. So, you know, is this one more factor that might tip it that way? Yeah, but, you know, as we've always said, we're not investing in stocks for later this year or next year or even the year after. You know, we're investing for, in stocks for the longer term stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to impact Necessarily, how we view investing in stocks,
1: you know, this week versus a month ago. Yeah, I'm going to throw in though from a couple short-term feelings I have. One is, and remember this now. What I'm about to say is this is long, probably long gone when you hear this podcast. But you know, we're the stock futures. This is uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. What day is today? I forgot what day today is. Wednesday the morning. <laughs> hey, beware the Ides of March. Right. So, Credit Suisse. Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> that bank. Anyway, right now they're having problem. I will, you know, what's what are we talking about? There's too big to fail. There's eh, I'll get back to you Monday. And there's eh, we're totally reliant on the Saudi government. So this <laughs> one right now, the, the Saudi government saying, eh. <laughs> I don't know how much we're going to support you right now. Their stocks plummeting. It's so a short term, right now. I'm just looking at the SP futures. Right now, they're really down a lot with this. Mm. So you're going to have incidents, I think, in the stock market that could be real short term blips like this during this crisis. But what's, I've been Mr. Silver Lining in the last few podcasts. I'm actually going to come up with a silver lining here for stocks with all of this going on. And that silver lining is because of all this, what's going on and all this turbulence, the Fed may be in a position where I don't know about continuing to raise these interest rates with all this. We may have to like, I don't know, maybe this quarter, we won't raise them. Now what's that going to do? That's going to give us again, a short term rise most likely to your stocks as that's our possibility. So I think in the short term, you're going to have some possibilities for some positives in stocks. If if the crisis and if the crisis dissipates and they don't feel that, well, that's good because the crisis dissipated. If it doesn't, then you actually might see as stocks did during uh covid you know crisis but right. not really for companies looking for those interest rates to to stop going up well that was what you just said is precisely what
0: i wrote down for the effect for bonds which is you know the the market was originally expecting the fed to raise rates three times three quarter point rate hikes And then it went to, well, maybe, and this is, you know, everybody's always trying to read the tea leaves when when Jay Powell says anything, but it went to maybe some of those rate hikes will be a half a percent instead of a quarter of a percent. (coughs) Well, after this occurred, those expectations went down again, and bonds had the best two or three-day rally in, I don't know if it was in history, but it was in a long, long time. You know, so it's a phenomenal rally there in bonds. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't think that, you know, if you're holding a high quality bond portfolio and still we would prefer to be on the shorter end of things, I don't think this really impacts the way you invest in bonds. Um, other things that I wrote down here, CDs, you know, we have been utilizing those for some clients. Um, You know, the only thing I would say is, you know, it's got to be less than that 250000 You know, not that we ever would go above that, but, you know, you you don't want to be overly concentrated, even if it is one of those too big to fail. What's the point? Why are you, you know, why are you throwing caution to the wind and, and gambling there when you could easily diversify into multiple companies? And then, Dave, the last thing that I put down here is annuity contracts. How, how what's your take on, you know, failures of banks and then compare that to failures of annuity or life insurance companies, I should say.
1: I've, so I forgot to write that. I actually wrote notes for today's show because I had thoughts and I, for, I was thinking last night about that. My thought is it's just getting old because always you'll see there is this bias. You know, you you always know people listen to us for a long time, know our feel. Everything is just a tool in the toolbox, whether it's annuities or bonds or stocks or your CD, whatever. So there's always, oh my gosh, for whatever reason, I'm worried about the financial security of my annuities, for example, things that are backed by or sold by a life insurance company, which have always, right. A, have always have their own backdrop, which I don't feel like getting into. We've explained it a million times on this show. But yeah. B, they've always shown to be stable. This is just historical. You've never yeah. seen these crisis issues with life insurance, with annuities. You've never seen yeah. a run on annuities, a run well, on that- any of this stuff during the Great Recession, during anything. During the tech bubble, during this,
0: yeah, and um, I mean, I've there, said this. There's
1: never been an issue yet. For some reason, it's <laughs> brought up. It hasn't been brought up during this crisis yet, but it's brought up all the time during financial crisis, especially by I think anti annuity people for whatever their reason is, or anti life yes. insurance products. They said, "Well, you don't you don't know about the stability." I don't know from a historical point of view. You do know about the stability, and there's a lot of backdrops and protection, state regulations that, that have led to those stabilities. So wow. when I look at those products, I look at that. I personally never say never about anything, but I look at them in my own portfolio and and with clients as things that I feel extremely good about and, and don't worry about it. And that's from a historical perspective and yeah. the backdrops that they have. Yeah, I mean you
0: just don't have the the failures and you know I always say it's is not you know do you do you really think that the the people the men and women running the life insurance companies are smarter than the people running the banks? I right? I don't think so. I think they're the the same sort of people. I think it's the regulations. It's the requirements, it's the reserve requirements where <coughs> life insurance companies have to keep, you know, these reserve requirements. And so that's why you saw, you know, I don't know if, I don't even want to say that nobody in, in the financial crisis, no life insurance companies went under, because I think there were one or two really small, and I think there was some fraud involved there. But, you know, the numbers on banks that went under were in the hundreds.
1: You know, so- look well, look, the other re- I mean, if that's one reason, and then there's the technical reasons, but there's also the obvious emotional reasons these bank issues are not, if, if, and this is if SVB, if Silicon Valley banks, whoever chairman didn't say, Hey, publicly, instead of raising money behind the scenes, we have a money problem. If you keep your money here, we're good. Right. And everybody said, Oh, I'm taking my money out now, but it's an (laughs) emotional thing. Like you said, a run on the bank is emotional. People get emotional. There's never, there aren't a run. Oh my God. There's a run on my monthly annuity payment. Oh, there's right. a run on death benefits. What? Yeah. So <laughs> For if you're having a on, in this country, that's far more important than your money. So the they're bottom not
0: on-demand the deposits.
1: <laughs> so there's an emotional aspect to these other products that you're not going to see the systemic failure, mainly because you don't have emotional runs, to, usually on these kinds of products as well. Yep.
0: All right, I think that uh, just about covers it. Unless you got anything else you want to throw in there?
1: No, all I want to throw in is again to people worried about it. I, you know, in our opinion, I, I would say it's business as usual. Take the necessary yep. steps to make yourself feel better. But you know, we live in a country where you can take those necessary steps if you feel like, you know, a it's no brainer is the two hundred fifty thousand dollar FDIC guarantee. That's yeah, just something to make yourself feel better. And B you know, if you feel like you don't want to see this kind of scenario in your bank in in the newspaper, I guess there are no guarantees, but the closest thing we have is too big to fail. And if you start to do a little research, you'll realize, wow, I feel pretty darn good about having my money. If that's my concern, a lot of people might just feel the 250,000 is enough. I mean, you know, that's up to you. But To me, this is not something from the short term or the long term by making what seem like the obvious moves to panic about, to worry about, and and you shouldn't worry about it. All
0: right. Thanks for joining us for this special episode. We're going to save our 100th episode reminiscing for the 101st episode. Right. Where
1: not only will you won't have this crisis, you won't have a cold. You now have the hiccups. (laughs) You won't have any of these things going on. So we can focus on the celebratory 100th episode. It's going to be great. Talk to everyone soon.